This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Tonight's topic is the stigma of alcoholism. When we say the word alcoholic, we all have a picture that pops into our head of what an alcoholic looks like. Those of us in recovery know that, in fact, those the stigma is 99% of the time. It's just simply not true. We're going to have several guests on that are going to talk about a little of their experience, strength, and hope, and how it is that they got over the roadblock of the stigma of acknowledging that they may have a problem with alcohol or are alcoholics and find their way to sobriety. And this is a really important topic because the reality is that stigma is one of two big obstacles to getting sober, denial being the first one. And you can have lots of people who are not in denial. They know that they have a problem with alcohol or they know that they're an alcoholic, but they are just simply afraid to reach out for help for fear of judgment and of the stigma of people thinking that if you are an alcoholic, you're morally weak or corrupt, when in fact it has nothing to do with will and everything to do with having a disease. And Our objective here at the Bubble Hour is to help people understand that absolutely anybody could be an alcoholic and that the stigma is really a fallacy. And so we hope that you listen to tonight's show with an open heart and an open mind and um, try to identify with the women that you hear and the stories that they tell. And we appreciate you listening. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Lisa. Hey, Ellie. Thank you so much. And I had prepared this and I plan just to tell my story about why I'm no longer so afraid of the stigma, but <clears throat> I've decided to read it just because my brain is kind of crazy right now. I'll just share this with you, and hopefully someone can take something from this and use it. I knew that I drank too much long before I ever told a soul. I went to great lengths to cover up my drinking. I hid the true extent of my drinking in the isolation of my home. Alcohol played tricks with my mind and magnified my ability to rationalize my behavior. Denial is a powerful thing. I convinced myself that my drinking wasn't that bad. I didn't have a DUI. I didn't go to jail. I didn't lose my family yet. But I felt like every day was a nightmare that I was living in. The highlight of my day was sitting alone at night drinking wine. I didn't look like an alcoholic wino in the gutter. But I had this black hole inside of me that I was trying to fill with alcohol. To the outside world, I looked like a success. On the inside, I was dying. (laughs) 
Alcoholism is a word shrouded in desperation and shame. As a woman suffering from alcohol addiction, the standard is doubly so. As a little girl, I didn't run around squealing excitedly about wanting to be an alcoholic when I grew up. Instead, I ran around squealing excitedly about wanting to move away, go to college, one day be a teacher and help other people, one day be a mommy. Becoming an alcoholic was the farthest thing from my mind. In fact, growing up, I saw firsthand what happens when a person is an alcoholic. My personal experience made me believe that an alcoholic could not love me because I was not worthy of being loved. Hmm. Sorry. An alcoholic, right. an alcoholic never followed through his promises and commitments. An alcoholic left for days and made me wait to hear if he was alive or dead, all while questioning what I could have done to stop this from happening. Could I have been sweeter? Could I have been prettier? Could I have been funnier? <clears throat> An alcoholic passed out in my neighbor's yard and got arrested and went to jail as my friends were over, witnessing every detail to, to later share with classmates. An alcoholic forgot to pick me up from school, and I, had to, and I had to walk home, making me question at age 11 what I did wrong to make this happen. An alcoholic made me drive his car because he was passed out at age 13 while I was scared to death but stoic. My main goal was keeping his secret so that I could protect him. An alcoholic stole all, <clears throat> stole all the money from my college fund and drank it away the year before I left for college. An alcoholic shows up drunk on the football field to be my <clears throat> homecoming court escort, leaving me ashamed and humiliated, angry and confused. All of these things and more happened to me growing up because my father was an alcoholic. I vowed from an early age to never be anything like my father, and I wasn't. So I couldn't be an alcoholic, right? I was everything society and my community expected me to be. I was an overachieving perfectionist. I finished college, got married, and began my career as a teacher all around the same time. Drinking was normal then, I thought. We were very social people with lots of friends. My husband's career was thriving, and part of that was based on evening cocktails with clients and trips that included social drinking. Sure, we drank too much sometimes, but so did everyone else. I had officially escaped my childhood. I was determined to be perfect. I was determined to never think of my past. I simply did not allow myself to even have negative feelings or feelings at all in general. I was the epitome of what it meant to be a people pleaser. I was everyone's go-to girl. I was the friend you could count on. I was a passive wife who never voiced my opinion, and I nodded my head yes to anything and everything I was asked to do. I even suggested going places and doing things I hated because I wanted things to always be smooth and easy for everyone else. There was one constant through all of this. There was always a drink firmly in my hand. Fast forward to motherhood. I had two babies very close together. My dream had at last come true. Finally, I was a mom. I was given two children to love and loved them I did. With a force so powerful, I could not handle it. That overwhelmed me and terrified me. I used wine as a way to detach from the overwhelming amount of love I had for my children. I drank wine at night to escape from my obsessive thoughts about all of the ways I mothered wrong. I drank wine to dull the sound of toddlers and their mothers at playdates in my house. I drank to get away from the, I drank to get through the endless chores that came with being a mom of two small children. I drank wine to feel like a part of the group at a dinner party. I drank to be to be the person I felt like my husband liked. I drank wine to drown out unresolved and unacknowledged feelings of shame and fear and questions about who I was pretending to be and unworthiness that were lying just below my surface. The way of drinking, that way of drinking worked for a while until it didn't. When it stopped working and doing what I needed it to do, I hid and I drank more. I began to cover it up. I began to take are you an alcoholic quizzes and when the answer started to read yes, I would lie to myself to get the results I wanted. These quizzes are wrong. That's what I would say to myself. I'm not an alcoholic. I can't be. I'm way too smart for that. <clears throat> I'm a wife and a mom, and I put my family before anything. I'm an educated woman living a life to be proud of. I overcame my childhood, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do for everyone. I take care of everything. I can't possibly be an alcoholic. <clears throat> I don't do the things my father did. He is an alcoholic. I am not. Denial, denial is a very powerful thing. 
Accepting and then admitting I was an alcoholic did not come easily for me. I was afraid. I was afraid I would be judged by other women. I was afraid that people would think less of me for being weak enough to succumb to addiction. I was afraid I would never again have fun. I remember thinking that there was no way I could ever have fun without alcohol being involved. I was afraid that I would not be able to deal with life without alcohol. At some point, I realized that my fear of life without alcohol was not as scary as losing my life to alcoholism like my dad. Although our alcoholism manifested differently, although his disease had progressed to such a high level of addiction that he did eventually become the stereotypical drunk on the street before he died, I was just like him. I was just drinks away from my life becoming what his eventually became. Alcoholism is progressive. If I did not get off this fast-moving train, I would die of this disease, too. I may not look the part, but I was the part. (laughs) I'm a sober woman now, and I can look at myself in the mirror without seeing a stranger. I fought very hard to get here, and I never had to go back. I've learned that it takes a strong and courageous person to admit defeat and recover. My children are now seven and nine, and they will never have the same traumatic experiences I had at their ages. Instead, they will have a mother who will love them and protect them and cherish them. I'm learning how to accept myself and deal with the feelings and emotions and conflict in life without numbing myself with alcohol. This recovery is a gift. Every single day, I wake up without fear and without shame that used to plague me. I wake up thankful and hopeful. I'm a work in progress. I'm not where I want to be yet, but I'm getting there. I hope everyone listening will hear my story and reach out for help. Just please give it a try. I'll let myself be vulnerable enough to connect with other women just like me. Doing that one small thing from behind the safety of my laptop helped me to get where I am today. I listened to others who had, <clears throat> who had gone before me with this, and I wanted what they had. I wanted, it, I wanted so badly that I was willing to believe them. There are women just like you and just like me, normal women who have educations, who are smart, and who are courageous, and I've learned so much from them. I hope that you will give this a chance, and if you're listening to this, that you'll be willing to recognize that there are women just like you who are doing exactly what you're doing, and we're here to help each other. Now, instead of being part of the problem, I'm part of the solution. Thank you. Wow. Talk about courageous, Lisa. That was was incredibly brave and incredibly moving. Really. Thank you. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Next up, we have Andrea. Hi. Hi, hey, Andrea. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, Lisa, uh, that was amazing. I had to take a really deep breath and honor what so you did. So did I. <laughs> uh, really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Andrea, and I'm a single mom of an eight-year-old boy. I'm originally from Boston, which some of you may pick up, and I now live in the West Coast. And I am letting you know that I'm not using my real name because of concerns about my professional position and the public, I work in the public sector and it is all part of the stigma that I feel that creates a fear in me from being able to use my real name and completely coming out as an alcoholic woman and mom. Just to give you a little background about myself in terms of my drinking, one, I've been sober for a little over 13 months, and a lot of what Lisa said I can totally relate to and had similar comments. I knew that I was not a normal, quote-unquote, drinker for many years, 
but it took me a long time to accept that I was an alcoholic. And that's because there were chunks of time, even years, when I didn't drink. I never lost a job. I never got arrested. I never had a DUI. And, and I know there was talk about two distinct things being a stigma and denial. For me personally, I feel that the stigma created and worsened the denial that I had because the way I would see it is, well, how could I be an alcoholic? And when I would uh, question myself, if I can hold a demanding job, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. If I can keep up with my bills, if I, I can stay on top of things, I'm not an alcoholic. So I had that stigma entrenched in my mind and that perpetuated my own internal denial, which justified my continued drinking. And, of course, now I'm able to see that alcoholism is a progressive disease, and there's no question about that from my own personal experience and others that I speak with, have spoken with. And I feel immensely lucky and grateful that I stopped drinking before I got in that, a DUI, arrested, lost my job, or any of those things. During my pregnancy, like a lot of other moms, I found it easy not to drink and mm-hmm. for a few years thereafter. And so I mistakenly assumed that because I had gone for several years without drinking, I definitely could moderate or control my drinking. So for a variety of reasons, I justified drinking wine again, and I started out slow, and I kept to less than two glasses a night for a couple of months. But then within a couple of months, I was drinking a bottle of wine a night, and most of it was consumed after my son went to bed. During this time, it was, you know, I had a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. I couldn't believe I, had, I was already back to a bottle. How come I couldn't stay to, to one glass a night or two glasses a night? I did a whole bunch of games, mind games. I'd pour half the bottle out and then just drink that, and I would always want more. And I would then pour less than half out, or I would try to stretch it out. But at the end of drinking a bottle of wine, fortunately, I didn't have any more in my house. I was always wanting more. And I struggled for three years knowing that I was on a destructive path that was jeopardizing both my physical and my emotional health. I felt a lot of self-loathing. I felt selfish as a mother. I felt a lot of worry about my health, about my health, and just a lot of shame and guilt. And I I knew that I wanted to get help, definitely felt that the stigma stood in the way. And and how that manifested for me is that I, I saw a therapist because I knew I wanted to get help, but I wasn't even able to tell this therapist how much I drank. I mean, I mentioned to her that I was a stressed out single mom. I worked really hard in a very stressful job and that I needed two glasses of wine at night to cope. And I was looking to make some changes. But I, in truth, was drinking a lot more than two glasses of wine at night. But I was so embarrassed to tell Mm -hmm. the truth. And I was really paranoid, worried that she might have some reason to report me to Child Protective Services because I am a single mom. And if she knew the truth, she might feel that I was jeopardizing my son's safety, which, in fact, I was by drinking a bottle of wine at night, even if it was after he went to sleep, because obviously that impacted me. And I also wanted to get some help from my physician But I was terrified that the information, if I revealed information to my physician, that she would have to write it down in my medical files and that somehow it would get to my work and my boss because I sustained a work-related injury and my office has a right to um, access medical documents. And even though it's not likely, it was always possible. And in my mind, I was thinking of what legal issues would come up. So I, I did, though, I became concerned enough that I approached my physician with a lot of hesitation and trepidation, and I asked her if she would not write anything down in my medical file if I, you know, revealed to her about concerns of my drinking, about my drinking. And she reluctantly agreed, but that she said she would maintain the information separately. 
So at my next appointment, I, I asked for my file, and lo and behold, I saw this huge block writing, ETOH, mm. which is mm. a, it's a chemical compound of alcohol, a chemical abbreviation for alcohol, ETOH issues, and they were written in large letters on the cover of my folder. And so I, I was so upset. And so um, I felt really violated, and I also felt that, wow, what was, what was the purpose of this? What was the point of this? Now, so everybody out there in the medical staff, they can look at my folder, they can bring me back to the room and say, aha, this lady has mm-hmm. ECOH issues, mm-hmm. we know about you. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I couldn't see the point in it. And I, mm-hmm. again, I just felt very violated. So I never returned to see that physician, and I wrote her a letter, uh, which is probably in my file, come to think of it, but anyway, I, I had to let her know that I was concerned about that, and what I ended up doing is I decided to see an addiction therapist, specifically because I felt that that was what I needed, and the addiction therapist was going to be much more aware and understanding of the issues and concerns that I had. I ended up paying out of pocket to see this addiction therapist. And I pay a lot of money for my family health insurance. And yet I'm paying out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, this addiction therapist, who I absolutely love, is she doesn't take notes. (laughs) So that's helpful. And what I did, to to be honest with her, is this relates to how I, I really discovered or became honest with myself about my alcoholism. I decided to look online and I searched a variety of recovery materials and I started reading the stories and I was just blown away. I was totally blown away and I started to sob because I, I, I felt so alone. And when I read these stories, I thought, wow, I see myself in these women, in these stories. I'm not alone. I'm not isolated. I felt a sense of hope. I felt, you know, okay, okay, these women, I, I, I get it. I have a community of people that I can turn to. And so I wrote a post and I said, I know I'm an alcoholic. And it was the first time I said it. I was very honest about it. I talked about a lot of my fears. And it was, it was very powerful for me to write that and submit it. And then I got a personal email in response from Ellie the next day, which was deeply moving. And then it was posted and women who responded just gave me the courage, the validation, the confirmation that you don't have to worry about feeling the stigma, basically. You can get help. Help is available. We're with you. You'll find a better, different life without alcohol. So anyway, I I submitted my post to this therapist before I ever met her because I wanted to start with complete truth. And that has made a huge difference. I, I, you know, I wish I could say that I'm not impacted by the stigma today, even though I have 13 months of sobriety, but I am. And it's mainly because I'm a head of household, uh, primary wage earner. I, I'm the sole wage earner. So I worry about the stigma affecting other people's perception of whether or not I would be able to continue with my job and be effective, especially because I work in the mm-hmm. public sector. So that's something that I'd, I'd like to work on. I don't feel the need to share it with, with coworkers or with, with my office. At some point, I, I don't share it with, with family, and that's more in part because of the stigma and pride and shame. And those are things that I feel that I need to continue to work on in my second year of sobriety. But Hopefully, in time, the stigma will erode and will be dismantled and more and more people can be honest about it. And, and I guess I just want to make one final point. I, I, in my second year of recovery, I've also recognized that I had a dependency on a sleep medication, Ambien. And I have no problem telling people and being open about that, even though there were a few experiences that I had while on that on Ambien, where I had a blackout, and I felt the mm-hmm. same shame 
and embarrassment and, and said mm-hmm. things and did things that I could have done while I was intoxicated and wasn't proud of. And, but yet there wasn't and there isn't the same stigma associated mm-hmm. with that. So it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's, it's really yep. alcohol. Andrea, if I can make a couple quick points, I, I think one of the things that's really inspiring, there's a lot of things that are inspiring about your story, but that despite your horrible experience at the physician and despite, I mean, you know, you were, you knew that you needed to find some help and, and at every corner you were meeting with resistance or misunderstanding that you kept advocating for yourself. You got online, you Googled, you reached out to us. I mean, you continued to try to help. You you loved yourself enough to continue to try to get help. And I think that's a really important part of your story. And I also think it is incredibly awesome that you're here today. I hope that we can make the stigma go away or diminish. And you're doing it just by being here and talking on the show. And and thank you so much for that. Andrea, that was wonderful. And can I just make one quick point? I noticed something that you said about when you went to the therapist, you you didn't exactly tell the amount of alcohol you were drinking. You would maybe say two glasses because you were embarrassed to tell more. Did I hear that right? Yes. I did that too. I think that's really, I think it's very, very common. And what I would really like to say is if you can't, you have to be honest with somebody about the amount that you're actually consuming. Um, If not, yeah, I just think everyone seems to do that. Or a lot of people that I thought would seem to do it. And hopefully things like this will make people more aware. And thank you for sharing that and being so honest. And I admire your bravery. Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. We'll move on to our next caller, and that is Amanda. Are you there? Yes. Hi. 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 This is Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Well, tell you a little bit about myself. I'm 43, and I'm divorced, and I don't have any children except for my greyhound. But this is such a great topic. I really just wanted to um, pipe in my two cents because I think I handled some of this a little bit differently knew I had a drinking problem for a long time, and my biological father was actually an alcoholic like Lisa's, and there are many other alcoholics in my family. My stepfather is an alcoholic too, but he's been in recovery for 21 years. And I really identified a lot with Lisa when she was speaking, and I I could feel the pain because I went through a lot of that myself, although mm-hmm. not for as long of a period of time because my biological father, although was not a part of my life and mostly Mm -hmm. due to his drinking, he was a womanizer, he was abusive to my mother, he was in and out of jail a good amount of his life, including when I was born. I think he got out when I was six months old. My mother actually ended up marrying him because she was forced to, but then she left him when I was two. And I would see him on weekends. And I, I just, I remember I loved him to death and we would have a great time during the day. And then it would seem like every time he had me, he would leave me with his girlfriend and go out to the bar at night. And he would always say like, oh, we're going to go bowling tomorrow. We'll do this and that. You know, we'll do the ice cream truck. And some of this, I remember some, you know, my parents, oh, well, I do remember it because it was, it was painful. 
but my mom and my stepfather, they told me how horrified they were that they'd come to pick me up on Sunday and I would just be hysterical, be crying my eyes out mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he would have not come home from the bar and mm-hmm. he was probably out cheating on his girlfriend. He was just not a, not a good guy. On the times that he did drive me home, he was often drunk. And so my mother met my stepfather when I was about five, and he quickly picked up on all of this and basically gave him an ultimatum and said, if you keep doing these things and keep hurting her this way, you're not going to see, see her anymore. For a five-year-old kid, that was pretty devastating, and I didn't understand it at all. My aunt tells me about a story. We went to Boston one time. He lived in, like, the Quincy area. We went to Boston one time when we were going to Harvard Square and all this stuff, and she said, I was just walking around looking for my father. I just thought we were going to bump into him on a street corner because we were in the city, and so I was going to bump into him. It's just, like, bizarre, but that was five years later, and it was still, you know, I still thought about him all the time. And it's taken me a long time to even realize what, impact he had on my life. Because of some issues that I had growing up, just in how I handled relationships, especially with men, I decided when I was 22 that I was going to strap on my big girl boots and go and meet him in person. And so I asked my mom how I could find him, and she told me where I could find my grandmother. I ended up calling her up, and I found out I actually had a sister who was five years old, and I actually have this vague memory of this baby in a crib when I was still seeing him. And anyways, I met her first. I called her up. I guess she had been looking for me for years, her and my aunt. And um, her and I just hit it off. And I was good with that. (laughs) I was like, okay, I confronted something, even though I hadn't accomplished anything. But she dragged me to see him. She's like, you have to. And um, she was actually still involved with him and in uh, her life. And So we finally, we went to see him, and he was living in this crappy apartment. He had a new girlfriend, shocker. There was a baby there, and so I had yet another sister, and it turns out that there's at least six of us. There may be more. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I was always a little nervous dating because I didn't know who might be my brother. (laughs) It was just, it was was kind of insanity. I mean, that's how my demented mind thinks, but... But the bottom line is he was still drinking, uh, still drinking and drugging, not taking responsibility for anything. I'm sure, you know, she was supporting the household. I mean, and and so to me, that was an alcoholic. I also had an uncle who had been arrested uh, numerous times for drinking and driving and had been um, in jail twice for it. And again, that's what I thought of as an alcoholic. So, you know, the stigma for me, it was more men. I guess I didn't hear that much of women alcoholics, although I I actually know some. I actually have an aunt who died at 24 from drugs and alcohol. But to me, you know, that's what I envisioned an alcoholic, someone who abandons their family and Mm -hmm. turns their back on their little girl. And Mm -hmm. on the flip side, I have my stepfather who, he was an awesome dad. He came into my life when I was five years old. He was a great father. He did lots of things with with me, and and he was also a fun guy. Like when we had family get-togethers, he was the life of the party, and he was tough on me at times. But I never associated that with him being an alcoholic or anything like that. And and then I was actually no longer living at home. I was 22, so it was about the time, and might have been what prompted me to meet my real father. Now that I think about it, but he got arrested for a DUI. And my mother was furious and pretty much, you know, told him to stop drinking or get out of the house. And he just stopped, (laughs) And, um, and which was pretty amazing to me. And I say he just stopped. Now I understand that he stopped. He went away for actually not for a long period of time, but he attended meetings and he got help. Um, Wonderful. And then there is, of course, my my best friend Ellie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew her. And yeah, a few of you might. And you know, here she was, this glaring example of how someone can get sober and be on top of the world. And I was with her when things were really bad, kind of near the end of the drinking. I had gone down there one night and I saw what her bottom was, or near near to it, and I was scared. 
And I actually called up my stepfather and asked him to talk to her on the phone. I asked her to get help, and it, it took a little bit more than that, but she did, and she got sober. And I remember thinking that was just absolutely amazing, and I was so incredibly proud of her. And, and at the same time, my alcoholic brain was like, oh, that's too bad because I had lost my drinking buddy. What was interesting to me is I never judged her. I was just proud of her, and I was proud of my stepfather, and I'm like, well, they were, they were two happy people. Even as my drinking progressed, you would think that seeing that and seeing how bad things could be, that that might have inspired me to quit drinking, but I just love drinking that much. I really could not picture my life without drinking. I didn't think it would be fun. There was a part of me that was convinced that, well, maybe they weren't real alcoholics because they weren't like my biological father or my uncle. They weren't what my definition was, and probably because they were too much like me, and I didn't want to mm -hmm. see that. Yeah. The stigma of being an alcoholic and what people would think of me, I don't think that ever bothered me that much because I've always been kind of what you see is what you get. And Ellie and my stepfather would have conversations with me about my drinking. And I, I had no problem saying, yeah, I think I drink a little bit too much, but I, I have it under control. I'm really watching it. I know it runs in my family, and so I'm keeping an eye on it. And I'll let you know if things get really bad. <laughs> now, in the meantime, I had been, already been arrested a couple times for DUIs. And... <laughs> But I still didn't think it was that bad. It, it still floors me to this day how I could continue to go on, but I think it's because I hadn't had enough punishment. But when I was arrested for the last time, so it was actually my third arrest because the second time they dismissed the charges. At that point, I really had to admit that I was an alcoholic, and I got about 90% there on my own, but I needed a little push from my friends. And... I actually have this friend who was the first to catch wind of my arrest, and she called up my family and my friends and organized my intervention. And she also called someone else who, this will probably make some people cringe that are listening, but she actually called up one of the bosses from my work and asked him to attend the intervention. And... I know that sounds like maybe it's breaking my confidentiality or anything like that, but she knew me well enough to know that the one thing that would prevent me from getting help is my job because I was so dedicated to my job. And she knew that that was the one thing I would say, well, I can't go away, I can't get help because I, they need me at work and I can't lose my job. So for me, and I don't necessarily recommend it for other people, but for me it was absolutely the best thing that she could have done. And so with him there, and, well, it was actually my, my stepfather who showed up at the door first, and he drove out four hours from Vermont. So the minute I saw his face, I knew something was up. And then the, everyone else piled in, and they told me I needed to get help, and I, and I agreed. And I agreed very quickly with the assurance from my boss that it was going to be okay, that he was going to talk to my other bosses because... There's a few higher-ups that I reported to, and he was going to talk to them and that I did not have to worry about my job. Um, that's wonderful. So that's where my journey began. Fortunately, my friend knew that I trusted this person very much at work, and I, I'll forever be grateful. I don't know anyone else who could have even thought to do that. She knew that part. That was great. Of me. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> So from there, the next day, actually, Ellie came over, and she sat with me, and I called detoxes and got in that day, which is amazing, because it can actually be really difficult to get help. And I stayed in for six days, and, which is longer <laughs> than you often get to stay. And they gave me the option of going into um, an inpatient program for 30 days or doing an outpatient program, um, intensive outpatient program. And... Being the little workaholic that I was, I, I said, oh, I'll do the outpatient program and I can go back to work, which fortunately people talked to me and said, why don't you take care of yourself and then worry about work? That just, just goes to show, I mean, here it is, I'm getting out of a detox and I'm ready to go back to work, and thank God I didn't. So the first thing that I knew I had to do, though, when I got out was to contact my work and let them know what was going on with me. And... So I sent an email to my direct boss. So not the one at the intervention, but my direct boss. 
and told them I would call them when I knew what my schedule was. And that was actually just buying some time. It took me about a week to get up the courage to call him. I was terrified. And when I, when I called him, he said, let's not talk on the phone. I can pick you up for breakfast, and I'll come out to you. I know you can't drive. And so I said, okay. And he, he did. He came out the next day. And as soon as I got in the car, I just spilled it all. I was just like, oh, my God, I did this. I'm so sorry. I never let it interfere with my work or I did my best. I know sometimes I worked from home because I was, to be honest with you, I was hungover. I mean, I just blurted it all out. And, and I apologized a million times. And finally he was like, he, you know, kind of stopped me and said, you know, I really appreciate you telling me all that, but I just want you to know you do not have to apologize to me anymore. And he said, I know it took a lot of courage for you to call me, and I can't even begin to tell you how much I admire you for that. And I was just, like, stunned. And then he went on to share some stories about his own life, and he said that where he had been touched with alcoholism and shared a couple stories, and then he <clears> said, just, so I don't want you to be ashamed. And he said, we value you at work very much. We want you back when you're ready. And he assured me that no one else at work knew except for the people that had to know, which was HR, and that they were telling people that I had a family emergency and that I would be out of work for some time. And, and, and then he left it up to me. But that absolutely blew me away. I just, he couldn't have been more supportive. And the fact that he, that he said it, that it took courage. At that point, I hadn't even thought about it yet. I mean, I, I completely understand it now I, that it does take courage to get sober. It's, it's, it's a hard Absolutely. thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite sayings is surrender to win. And I was always a fighter. And to admit defeat to me is not, has never been an option. And, but the only way to fight alcoholism is to admit that you can't win. You can't beat it. You can't beat it on your own. And he just backed that up, and uh, as have other people in my life. So anyways, I was out of work for five weeks, and because of the job that I do, I, I did have to call certain people and tell them how to do the things that I only I knew how to do, like there are certain passwords even that I knew or where to find things. I mean, I actually have a lot of responsibility at work. And because I've always been open and honest, and I don't know why, but I, I, I you know, kind of like take me, take, you know, love me or leave me, I found myself just telling people what happened. I don't know if it was, part of it was my excitement about getting sober, or just, I don't know what it was, but I would just find myself blurting out with it. And I guess the, the first woman that I had to call her, I knew her husband was in recovery, so that, that certainly helped. And but everyone I talked to, to my surprise, they were all incredibly proud of me and supportive and said they would do anything to help me. And that just absolutely blew my mind. And the same thing happened when I told my friends and family. They supported me. They admired me for doing something about my problem. And it's been that way ever since. And so the shame that I... that. It took, you know, and the things that I went through, the shame is fading, fading away, although I do hold those things very close and near to me because it's important to me that I never forget what got me here either. But, you know, now I look at it as now I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty open with everyone at work, and um, actually part of the reason why I was that way too when I actually physically went back into the office was talking to Ellie a lot on the phone. It really helped me because we have a really strong drinking culture. Mm-hmm. I work, and they're not alcoholics or that I know of, but I am, and we had a beer league softball team, and I was the one always making sure we had the beer for that, and we have a beer cart, cart on Friday afternoons that goes Which on Which you started. <laughs> Which I, well, no, I didn't start it, but I, oh, I, 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 I thought it was your it. idea. I'm sure that it always happened. Oh. And the funny thing about it is, so I would push the beer cart, and it would be like, oh, hold on, like, I'm going to have another one. And, you know, I'd be, everyone would have one. For one for me, one for But I'd you. be the one going back to the kitchen having two and three. Yeah. And uh, we would have these company meetings, and I was the one emailing or texting everyone before the meeting, like, are we going out for drinks tonight? So 
for me, I needed to build the, those walls and say, hey, guys, that's not an option for me anymore. And it kept um, you safe. That's what you're saying, too, that, that honesty yeah, I, I and needed, being open I kept you safe. To. Yeah. I didn't necessarily tell everyone, although this is kind of funny. I, I supervise a group of people, on, uh, six or seven, and I actually called a meeting with them, and I told them all exactly what, ha- what happened because I don't know why. As a manager, I felt that I owed it to them and that I also didn't want them. This is reverse. This is my, I also didn't want them, not that they would have because they're all awesome, wonderful people, but I also didn't want them to ever think they could hold that against me. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. But for me, it was mostly that I felt that I was out for five weeks and I, I owed an explanation, although I didn't. And none of them felt that I owed them an explanation. And there was one woman who, when I told her what happened, she just cried. And she goes, I just, I'm amazed. I can't believe how strong you are. And I was like, wow. That was, it was pretty empower, empowering for me. And it made me feel really good. And, and since that time, I've had people come to me for help. I've had someone, it wasn't for himself, but he had a woman who needed some help, and he was asking my advice on what to do because I knew I was sober. Um, I had another woman who, same daddy situation as me, and she was like, and he chose alcohol over me, and, you know, I sat down and I talked to her, and I kind of explained it to her, and it helped a little, and I I told her, I'm always here if you want to talk, and for me, that's that's the greatest gift at all. Being open about it is I'm able to help people. And I know that doesn't work for everyone, but for me, that's what worked. Well, and so. this is Ellie. I, I mean, obviously, we've known each other for a long time, and we're obviously very close, but I, I, I say this totally objectively, and, I, and our stories are very similar. That's why I chose not to sort of share my stigma story. I also chose, made the decision once I had a couple of months under my belt to be totally honest with everybody and sort of just kind of come out, but come out on my terms mm-hmm. and tell people because I felt as though that robbed the gossip mill of, you know, the exactly. of, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. she's gone for 30 days. And this, like, I will tell you and I will tell you on my terms and I'm not going to give you any ammunition to point at me. And I sort of thought, you know, if you aren't going to be my friend who's an alcoholic, well, good riddance. You know, I, I, and I had a lot of support around me to do that, but it's, I think your story is a very inspiring example of the power of that kind of honesty. There are many, many people who aren't in the position to be able to do that because of their professions and all sorts of different reasons. So this is why we have so many different people on the show to give different examples of how it's turned out for them. But in my case also, I did not, at least not to my face, meet any judgment or ridicule. If anything, I had people kind of that I never would have guessed come out of the woodwork and say, I need to talk to you because I think I have a problem too. And it just, it gives hope to people out there who think that you can never be straightforward and honest with the people in your life, or you're definitely going to be judged. There are plenty of examples of that not happening. And I do believe that with the internet and more sharing that that's starting to happen more and more. So thank you, Amanda, for sharing that here today because it, it, gives people hope that it's not a done deal that everybody in your life is going to shun you or that you're never going to be fun again. In fact, the opposite is usually true. <laughs> so. Definitely true. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was wonderful. Right. It's still fun. Thank you so much. Oh, thank thank you. you, Amanda. I think our next caller is Mary. Let's see if Hi, I can get... Ellie. How are Hi, you? Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Mary. Hi, Lisa. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Um, I'm loving all of the stories tonight. I guess just a little bit about myself. I just turned 40, and I have about nine months sober, uh, a little over nine months. I live in New York. I'm married, and I have a seven-year-old little girl. And, I mean, I kind of have a little bit of everybody's that's already spoken, a little bit of everyone's um, story in there. It's weird for me. I don't really feel the stigma of being labeled so much as an alcoholic. I, my family, there's many people in my family that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, has been in and out of rehab. My father drank for a lot of my life. He, He quit when I was about 13 or 14. So I've always been around people who have either, I've it was common for me to hear of people actively drinking, struggling, recovering. So it wasn't always that. What I struggle with as far as a stigma is 
failing at something. It's as if pretty much everyone in my social circle drinks and the fact that I can't drink like everybody else and handle myself because I am an alcoholic makes me feel like I'm failing in some way. And so I guess for me admitting that I have this problem, it's more about not being perfect, so to speak, or not being able Mm -hmm. to take care of myself or my problems or there's something wrong with me that I can't drink like everybody else and get on with my, my day or that it affects me in this way. And, and so that's something that I've really struggled with in, in regards to the stigma. I, I don't know, at work, I, I don't really announce at work that I am an alcoholic, but they do know, the people that I um, associate with at work, they do know that I don't drink. Just recently, a, a woman at work asked me how I lost weight. And she said, oh, you look great. You look, you lost weight. And I, she said, how did you do that? And I said, I quit drinking. And she kind of gave me a funny look. I remember thinking, well, obviously, if I drink a glass of wine here and there, I'm not going to drop. I think people put things together, put two and two together. I, I do talk a lot now more openly about uh, sobriety and things related to that. And uh, I'm just more comfortable with it now. But that, that came after some time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until... I, I had to really immerse myself. And like I said, I mostly when I started on this journey, it was pretty much online. So I felt safe behind my computer. I wasn't really ready to put myself out there and have somebody see me like, oh, Mary has a problem. You know, she can't handle something. And mm-hmm. so I felt safe. I get that, Mary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I relate. I, yeah, I mean, even I, there's a there's some meetings around my area for people that are struggling. And, and I remember I thought of going to one and who do I, I see someone that I know walking into one of these meetings and I said, oh, I had to turn around. It wasn't that, I mean, here's somebody that's having the same issue that I am, but like I said, it was more an issue of me not being able to take care of a problem on my own. So I can completely big... relate to that. Mary, this is Ellie. I kind of, I can remember when I knew I had a problem, I would think I, have handled everything life's ever thrown at me. I can, I'll, I'll find a way to handle this. Exactly. You know, right. I've, me too. I've never backed down from a fight in my life, and I'm not backing down from this one. That exactly. Me, mm-hmm. for a long me too. Time. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And also just being able to ask someone else, someone for help. I, I, I always had to do everything on my own. So it was kind of twofold. It was admitting I couldn't do something and then having to ask somebody to help me. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, so that was what kept me suffering in the dark for a long time and kept me from getting sober sooner. I wanted to tell a story of something that happened to me, and I, I had shared it with some people already, but I love it, was just, story. <laughs> it was about, about, like I don't know, two months ago or so. And I, I take my daughter to Starbucks in the morning sometimes, and we're regulars where we go in, and the people that work there say hi to us and stuff like that, and... And so just it happened to be in the evening one night that I was going out and I stopped in there to go get a cup of coffee and I pulled my car up into the lot and I see a guy in the front who looks kind of like run down. He has this typical dirty looking clothes. He's got the red face. He's kind of sitting on the floor and you could just tell that this guy has been drinking a lot and it wasn't his first time. So I just go into the the, star, the Starbucks and I'm ordering my coffee and the guy walks in and and he's kind of making a little bit of noise and he goes over to the, the people that are working and he's asked them to call him an ambulance. He's like, I need an ambulance. I can't, I can't get home. I drank too much and I can't, I got to stop drinking. And I'm standing here online listening and waiting for their reaction and, and um, they kind of tried to talk him down a little bit and he, they got him to go back outside and sit. And then I heard one of the, the workers say to the other one, oh, alcoholic or, you know, drunk. or I don't, I don't remember the exact terminology, but it was something derogatory attached to it, like, look at that drunk or whatever. And I, I was standing there shaking. and Because you were angry? I was angry. I felt that 
I almost felt like it wasn't fair. Like, here I am standing there. I don't obviously look like this person, but I'm strugg- I could just as well be struggling the same way that that man is. And just because I don't look like he looks, they make a judgment. And, and I said something. I just said, you know, I'm an alcoholic too, and I might not look like that person, but you should be careful because you don't know who it is that you're that's struggling at that moment and yeah. and the guy just kind of looked at me <laughs> and I, I was shaking so hard and I had gotten my coffee and I went over and I put my book in and I walked out and I just got well, in love my it. car that, and, is, um, that is awesome Mary I love that yeah. story and uh well I texted Lisa right after like you cannot mm-hmm. believe this and um you know and I posted about it on online to some of the other women and and, um, you know, a few people had encouraged me to go back the next day because all of these things went through my head, you know. I go in here with my daughter. What are they going to think? All of these kinds of questions. And and I thought, this is the problem. That's, that's the problem that is going on in this society, that we let yep. people uh, make us feel. Anyone that's struggling, that's trying to get help for themselves, this is a positive thing. This should be, all of these people should be put on pedestals when praised for the, the, how hard it is for them to do this and that they're doing it. They yeah. shouldn't feel ashamed about it. And, and I did go in the next day. I made a point uh, to go in, and I got my coffee. I had my daughter with me, and it's fine. I, and I go in there still every other day or so, and I still, I've, I've run into the same person that I saw that night that I said that to, and he hasn't said anything. He hasn't treated me any differently. And of all of the stories that I've heard tonight and, and online and in my everyday life of people that, that suffer, I mean, I think to, what I have to keep remembering is that I've never actually you know, heard a bad story of somebody asking for support. I mean, um, and if I did, it was the person that they're asking it from doesn't care about them in the way that they should, or maybe they have their right. own problems. Or right. if somebody really, truly cares about your well-being, they're going to be happy that you're, you're taking a step in the right direction to, to make your life better for mm-hmm. yourself, your family, Absolutely. and everyone around you. Um, we're running low on time, and so we'll end it. I, first, Lisa, just anything that you wanted? I was want to make sure. Do you have anything? That no, I, I just think that I'm just so astonished, and I'm in awe by all of these wonderful, brave women who who shared with us. I just have so much respect for them. I do too. I think it's important to mention that we could start all the websites in the world, but if brave people didn't come and share their truths and tell their stories and Absolutely. be hosts on shows like this, it wouldn't matter at all. So thank you to everybody who comments thank and you. posts. And um, we also always like to say that if you um, go to the Bubble Hours website, that's www.thebubblehour.com, T-H-E, bubblehour.com, and also... Um, it may not have been mentioned tonight, but we talk about the Booze Free Brigade a lot also, which is a phenomenal community and a great place to start if you have identified with anything you heard tonight. So um, thank you, everybody, for your time. And Thanks, Billy. Bubble Hour. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, we'll guys. You Good night. Week. Okay. Good night. Bye-bye. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, yes, head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession every year 
who's looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I won't take that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity And I'm looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh yes, and I'm I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power 